Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're in our third part of a three-part series where we're discussing the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is broken into three individual categories which make up the wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. Today we're going to be talking about the mental discipline. In the previous two classes, we talked about wisdom and moral conduct, which I'll give you just a brief overview of that today for anyone who needs a refresher of what we discussed in our previous classes. Or if you're joining us for the first time and you weren't part of those classes, you'll get a little bit of refresher so that you'll understand what we're discussing as we talk about mental discipline. I'd like to welcome all of you and thank you for joining us, whether you're tuning in on YouTube, Facebook, and Zoom, or you're listening to this on our podcast or any of the other places where we distribute our content. Learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha will help to move the mind to this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Mental discipline as part of the Eightfold Path is a major component of that. Without understanding this mental discipline and how to actually practice these three steps of the Eightfold Path, one would not be able to actually be able to control the mind or have this mental discipline. Progressing on the path to enlightenment is to bring the mind to the middle and have the mind optimized, performing with clarity, have it have focus, concentration, and deep memory. An enlightened being is going to experience those benefits in others. It's the mental discipline that helps to bring these qualities of mind into the actual mind, cultivating it and developing it to the point where the mind comes to the middle and is optimized and able to perform well. Through learning and practicing these teachings, moving the mind closer to enlightenment, these aspects of the enlightened mind will benefit you in your daily life. Whether it's your personal or professional life, you'll see improvements in your decision making and your clarity of mind and all the relationships that you're involved in will just get better and better and more and more improved. So as we discussed today, just like all the other classes that we have, there's going to be periods of time where you can ask questions. And the way that you do that is in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Just put your questions into the comment section. And when we get to the question period throughout the class, our moderators will be sure that your question gets asked during the class. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand asking any questions or follow-up questions directly. So let's go ahead and talk about this eightfold path as it relates to our classes and just giving you kind of an overview of the things that we've already discussed in our previous classes. 
So far, we've discussed the wisdom and moral conduct of the Eightfold Path. We've gone into the individual steps of right view, right intention, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Making up this category of wisdom, we talked about right view. This is where we discuss the three universal truths of impermanence, discontentedness, and non-self. We also discuss the four noble truths, helping students to understand that it's craving desire attachment that is causing all the discontentedness in the mind. The mind is uncomfortable with impermanence. It craves permanence. It has certain wants or expectations. And when those get fulfilled, the mind experiences these temporary pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. But because those feelings are based on these impermanent conditions, those soon fade. They're temporary. And then the mind oftentimes slips into either painful feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Or if the mind is chasing after the objects of its affection because it wants certain things or it expects certain things, it's craving permanence has this mental longing with a strong eagerness and it doesn't get what it wants, then the mind can experience painful feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, all of these different discontent feelings and others. So as you experience discontentedness, you're actually causing it yourself because of the untrained mind. And it's through understanding right view and practicing right view, accepting responsibility that we are in fact causing our own discontentedness, that once you realize that, then you can actively work to improve it. So it's really empowering if you embrace this understanding and realize that you're causing your own discontentedness, you can break through and actually start working to apply the teachings to eliminate craving desire attachment, helping the mind get comfortable with impermanence. So when things are shifting and changing in the world, rather than clinging and holding on, craving permanence, the mind can just ebb and flow and be comfortable with this changing world around us. Because we can't change the universal truths. We can't change the natural laws of existence. And it's a real struggle to exist in a world that the mind doesn't understand. So all that we can do in order to experience a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind is to learn, reflect, and practice to understand these natural laws. And when we do, then the world becomes a much more peaceful place to exist. The mind can be much more content and joyful because it has the wisdom of these natural laws and it can start functioning through right view, realizing that we're causing our own discontentedness rather than blaming other people. And the Buddha talked in right view in the Four Noble Truths about this eightfold path is the way to eliminate all discontentedness in the mind. The second step of the Eightfold Path is right intention. This is three different aspects where the mind is focused on the intention of renunciation or relinquishment or letting go, focused on practicing non-ill will, or another way to say that is goodwill, focused on practicing the intention of harmlessness, not being interested to harm any beings, Because if we put out harm into the world, then harm is going to come back to us. The natural law of gamma is always there. 
It's just like the natural law of gravity. We didn't understand the natural law of gravity as a child, but it still affected us. And the natural law of gamma is the same way, is that if you don't understand this natural law, this is where it can be a real struggle and lots of difficulties going through life and trying to experience life without the understanding of these natural laws of existence that are always around us. So by practicing renunciation of letting go of beliefs and things that the mind is holding on to that isn't necessarily true, letting go of craving, desire, attachment, practicing non-ill will or goodwill, practicing harmlessness, the mind then sets the intention of not causing harm in the world, and then we can start working on our moral conduct. These steps of the Eightfold Path that you don't work on them one at a time, but you do need to understand that there is a, a way of ensuring that your practice is in sync here. So with the intention of harmlessness, then our speech or our communication, whether it's spoken communication or written communication, we can ensure that we're not causing harm through our speech. And the Buddha gave the five factors of well-spoken speech, that we speak at the right time, what we say is true, we speak gently, we speak beneficially, we speak with a mind of loving kindness and without blame. And of course, it takes time to gradually train the mind to do that. Because for so many years, we've been speaking in ways that are maybe at the wrong time or that aren't true with some lies. And maybe we spoke harsh and we spoke aggressive with people. Maybe we spoke unbeneficially. Maybe we gossiped. Maybe we slandered people in the past. And then maybe we spoke with hatred and anger and we blamed other people. But those things didn't lead to beneficial results for us. And when you get this wisdom from the Buddha of how to practice right speech, and you think about that as a ceiling, and you just gradually, gradually work your way up to that, realizing that sometimes you're going to take a few steps back, and then you're going to walk forward and take a few steps back and walk forward. But there's always this forward progression. And you can gradually evolve, gradually work skillfully with the mind, with your practice, and build up your right speech with all the different relationships, both personally and professionally. And as you see your speech improve, you will see the relationships blossom and improve. And this is how you know you're learning the truth and you're on the right path because you'll see the discontentedness in the mind gradually diminish but you'll also see that your relationships will gradually improve. Right action is all about not causing harm through our bodily actions. And the Buddha gave some general guidance there. And then in other teachings, he talks more detailed. Bodily actions can cause harm, things like killing or stealing, sexual misconduct, taking substances that cause heedlessness, gambling, things like this, we would like to ensure that we're not causing any harm through our bodily actions. Right livelihood is all about how we choose to sustain our life. What are we doing in the world in order to sustain our life, our occupation, or are we retired and we provide benefit through some kind of volunteer organization or something like this? And the Buddha gave us five wrong livelihoods that help us see that if we practiced any of these wrong livelihoods, it will cause harm in the world. So therefore that harm is gonna come back to us. He discusses if we sell weapons, if we sell living beings, if we sell meat, if we sell poison, 
or if we sell substances that cause heedlessness. All of these things are going to harm other beings if we do them. And therefore, that harm is going to come back to us. And our mind will be somewhat fearful because we know that our livelihood is not a righteous livelihood. And we can experience harm through practicing any of those wrong livelihoods. And by cleaning up our moral conduct, the mind can be at ease knowing that we're speaking to people with right speech and we're not harming through our speech, that we're not harming through our actions, we're not harming through our livelihood. We know that we're not causing other people to get angry and frustrated and irritated. So if people try to dump on us and blame us for causing their anger, a wise mind that understands right view you know for sure you're not causing somebody else to get angry. Just like you cause your own pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, other people do the same. So as you clean up your moral conduct more and more and more, and you get six months or a year or two years of really developing your practice and practicing this moral conduct really, really well, you'll see the relationships improve, but your mind can also be at ease knowing that you're not causing any harm in the world. And this is where we were talking about sleep before class. This is where you can sleep really easy at night because the mind is at such ease and there's not fear that you're causing harm in the world. Now with those understandings, it's time to move on and talk about the mental discipline of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Because once we have the wisdom that we're causing our own discontentedness and we practice this right intention of not causing harm and the other aspects of that, and as we develop our moral conduct more and more and more and we're working towards that in all situations, we also need to be continuously working on training the mind to have more control or discipline. And it's these last three steps of the Eightfold Path, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration that allow us to do that. I'm going to use the words of the Buddha to share with you exactly what he taught in terms of the Eightfold Path in his own words. Then I'm going to share with you ways of understanding it and it'll be easy for you to retain. The words of the Buddha are in this book that I share developing a life practice the path that leads to enlightenment so if you'd like to download this book if you'd like to take the pdf and print it or you'd like to get a printed copy for yourself on amazon you can get that and all the teachings that i share in this group learning program are from this book in this eightfold path in the words of the buddha are in chapter five of this book but let me share with you the next part which is the buddha's words on right effort and you can see exactly what he taught and then i'll share that with you and then i'll help you see how to understand this and i'll give you some examples to really illuminate it for you before we open up to any questions so what the buddha said in the eightfold path as it relates to right effort he says in what monks is right effort here monks a monk rouses his will makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to overcome 
evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to full perfection of development. This is called right effort. So this is what the Buddha shared related to right effort in the Eightfold Path. There's four aspects of right effort, and I'm going to break this down for you and put it into words that maybe help you remember and retain what the Buddha is talking about here. But it was important for me to share this with you so that I can share this next piece with you, which is where you can look at the four aspects of right effort and I can share some examples with you to help you understand. So the four aspects of right effort that the Buddha was just talking about, you can put them kind of in two different groups. The first two are related to unwholesome mental states. Number three and four are related to wholesome mental states. So the first one is to prevent unwholesome mental states that have not arisen prevent those from arising in the mind, okay? You might think of this as if you've never thought about killing a human being ever in your life, then this would be something that it's not currently in the mind, it's not there now, you're not thinking about killing anyone, and you should prevent that unwholesome mental state from arising. Just keep it out of the mind and never allow it to come into the mind because if we did that, it's going to cause harm to another being, therefore we're going to experience harm ourselves. The second aspect of right effort is to abandon unwholesome mental states that have arisen in the mind. So if you currently have certain unwholesome mental states in the mind, and if you're currently unenlightened, for sure there are unwholesome mental states that are there, then what the Buddha is saying is, is take the effort to abandon those unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind. Examples of those are if you're already in a committed existing relationship and you have this craving for sexual contact for somebody outside of that relationship, you know that that's going to cause harm to your current partner. So when that craving arises, the Buddha is saying take the effort to cut that off let that go and don't allow that craving for sexual contact outside of an existing relationship to pollute the mind. So abandon that unwholesome mental state that has arisen in the mind. Or another example is if there's anger, frustration, or irritation that arises in the mind for whatever reason, knowing that anger, frustration, irritation is only going to produce unwholesome speech and unwholesome actions and that's going to cause harm wherever you see anger frustration and irritation arise in the mind then you take the effort to cut that off let it go and we're going to be talking about these other steps of the eightfold path of how you can be aware of anger frustration irritation arising in the mind but these first two are all about unwholesome mental states 
So the first one is any unwholesome mental states that are not in the mind, prevent them from ever coming into the mind. Any unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind or you become aware that they're in the mind, cut them off, let them go and work to abandon those unwholesome mental states. The third part of right effort is to produce any unarisen wholesome mental states to arise in the mind. So when you become aware through this entire program of various wholesome mental states that I'm going to be sharing with you that the Buddha talks about are important as part of the path to enlightenment, you can then know that those certain mental states are not in the mind right now. And what you should do is you should actively work to cultivate and develop those mental states in the mind. So let's say that you were a selfish person and you know that and you don't share. You're not a very generous person. Well, one of the things you're going to learn as part of this path is that generosity is really important in order to eliminate selfishness. When we're growing up as kids, we're taught to share. We're not exactly taught why, but we're usually taught to share and practice generosity. Well, the Buddha teaches practicing generosity and sharing as well to eliminate selfishness, but also to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, that cause of discontentedness. So as you learn about all the various wholesome mental states, one of them being generosity, if you take inventory and you kind of know like, "Mm, yeah, I don't really practice generosity very much, and you realize that that's an important aspect of the path to enlightenment, then the Buddha says, okay, you should take the right effort to produce and arise this wholesome mental state in the mind. Another example might be compassion. Compassion is concern for the misfortune of others. This helps to kind of antidote indifference or uncaring mind. So if you kind of are indifferent when you see the misfortune of others or you have kind of a non-caring approach, then when you see that you observe that and you realize that you don't have much compassion in the mind or any compassion at all then what you would do with right effort is you would arise this compassion in the mind and start cultivating it and start practicing it in your daily life in your personal and professional relationships and these qualities and a whole lot of others that you're going to learn as part of this path are what's needed in order to move the mind, transform it towards the enlightened mental state, transforming and antidoting the various pollutions that are in the mind, you're gonna see a whole host of wholesome mental states that need to be cultivated in the mind. And where you see that your mind doesn't have those wholesome mental states, then you apply the effort to cultivate them. That would be number three. Number four, is to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not allowing them to fade away and work to increase their growth in the mind. So if there are certain wholesome mental states that are currently in the mind, like loving kindness, perhaps you do cultivate loving kindness and you have done that, maybe even prior to learning that it was part of the path to enlightenment. Loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing others be well. It's an active goodwill. Well, if you currently have loving kindness in the mind, 
then the Buddha says you should take the right effort to cultivate that, support it, encourage it, don't allow it to fade. And that would be a practice of right effort. If you are practicing sympathetic joy, sympathetic joy is having joy in other success, whether you contributed to their success or not. So you see somebody at work or at home, in your home life, if they something beneficial happens for them and you feel joy. It's like, oh wow, Barbara got a promotion. Even if you were interested in that same promotion, but Barbara got it instead of you, and you can feel joy for Barbara, like, oh wow, that's really great for her life. I'm pleased to see that she got that promotion at work. That would be sympathetic joy, that you have joy for others' success. Or if somebody purchased a new car or a new home or they had a new baby or something like that, rather than feeling jealous or envy, that would be the opposite of sympathetic joy. Rather than feeling that, if you currently feel sympathetic joy when you see beneficial things happening for people, then the Buddha provides guidance that says as part of right effort, we should support that, we should maintain that, we should encourage that in our mind, don't allow that to fade. And through doing these four aspects of right effort, then we're eliminating the unwholesome qualities in the mind and preventing any unwholesome qualities from arising in the mind. And we're cultivating any wholesome qualities that are needed in the mind and any wholesome qualities that are already there. We're supporting them. We're encouraging them. We're maintaining them, not allowing them to fade. One of the ways that I share this with my nine-year-old son is I teach him to kick out all the bad stuff and bring in all the good stuff. Or, you know, kick out all the unwholesome stuff and bring in all the wholesome stuff. That's an easy way to think about it. But the Buddha breaks it down in a lot more detail so that you can really fine-tune your practice and you can see exactly how to practice right effort. Let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about right effort. The way that you ask a question is put that into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand in Zoom and our moderators will call on you. So I'll just turn things over to James, Bossom, Manal, I'm not sure if Nick is with us today, and see what questions you guys have. Hi, David. I had a question about number one. It seems that if a mental state has not arisen, it can perhaps sneak up on us and we may not even be aware to look out for it. I was wondering if you have any advice on that. So the next step that we're going to talk about, which is right mindfulness, this is what's going to help you with right effort. Right mindfulness and right effort are really interconnected and all of these steps are really interconnected. But right effort and right mindfulness are really interconnected because without right mindfulness, you wouldn't be able to practice right effort. But in order to get to right mindfulness, which mindfulness is a wholesome mental state, you will have to practice right effort just to be able to get to right mindfulness. So if there are certain unwholesome mental states that you're not aware of, it's right mindfulness that will help you become aware of those, but also practicing investigation through learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings, you're going to uncover what the Buddha shares is these are the unwholesome mental states that are detrimental to the mind, that pollute the mind, that take it into the darkness 
that make it difficult for you to have personal professional relationships that promote unskillful conduct he's going to share all that with you as part of this entire path and part of these programs that i teach and he's also going to share with you what are the wholesome qualities that need to be cultivated in the mind and when you are aware of these things then you can actively work with them skillfully and this is where essentially what this path to enlightenment is for you is it develops these various tools and it's like a tool belt and you can pull out the various tools as you need them and with these unwholesome qualities if you're practicing right concentration which we're going to be talking about today too then you develop not only mindfulness but you also develop the ability to cut off and let go of any unwholesome mental states and you get really good at cultivating these wholesome mental states and as you practice these teachings more and more the condition of the mind will transform gradually and slowly this is why nobody can give you enlightenment this is why you can't pray for enlightenment this is why every individual has to do the work you have to apply the effort and energy this is why you can't force somebody to attain enlightenment because they have to take the effort to learn the teachings actively eliminate the unwholesome qualities and actively cultivate wholesome qualities if someone's not interested in doing that then they aren't going to attain enlightenment in this life but they perhaps might change 5, 10, 20 years from now. Who knows? Something might happen in their life that they choose to pursue this path. But we can't be attached to what others do. So this is where looking out for your own practice and developing your own practice, realizing that it's all part of this entire path that you have to actively understand through investigating the teachings and then actively apply effort to eliminate unwholesome qualities and cultivate wholesome qualities. I was wondering if you can speak about any connection between right intention and right effort, because on the surface, it seems like the two may be connected. Is, can you speak about how those two are related? Yes, yeah, sure. So if you think about right intention, those three aspects of right intention, the first one is renunciation or relinquishment or letting go. That's the intention that the mind forms right that's the thought or the thinking that the mind forms practicing right intention that one aspect of right intention but to actually put that into action you need to practice right effort that when you notice that the mind is holding on even though you have the intention of letting go that's your intention that's your thinking as part of right intention but where you notice the mind is holding on and it's causing discontentedness, that's where you have to take right effort to then actively let go, cut that off and let that go. The second aspect of right intention is to practice non-ill will or goodwill or loving kindness. So there, that's the intention. That's the thinking. That's the thought. Hey, I would like to practice goodwill or loving kindness or non-ill will. But until you take the effort to do that it doesn't happen right intention is just setting the thought or the thinking you have to put it into action through right effort of actually rolling up the sleeves digging in and where you see that the mind has some ill will some anger some hatred you have to cut that off with right effort let that go and arise loving kindness 
So here, if you notice that there's anger coming into the mind, then that second aspect of right effort, you are aware of that anger, you cut that off and let go of that unwholesome quality, and then you arise the wholesome quality, which is part of number three and four. You arise that loving kindness. That third part of right intention is the practice of harmlessness, having the intention of practicing harmlessness, setting the thought or the thinking that you're not interested in harming any beings. Okay, that's the interest, that's the intention, that's the thinking, that's the thought. But again, you have to put that into action through practicing right effort, where you see somebody says something about your child or about your life partner or about your physical appearance, and right away the mind wants to react and use wrong speech and argue with this person where you know that that's going to cause harm and your intention is to practice harmlessness but if you are aware of the mind wanting to react negatively back then you can apply right effort to cut that off and let it go and don't allow the wrong speech to come through and this is going to create kind of some inner frustration perhaps like you might be quietly frustrated but that's better than being outwardly aggressive and argumentative with people because when you're outwardly aggressive or argumentative or harsh with people now you're putting out harm into the world so you'll probably go through a period where you kind of bite your lip a little bit or you bite your tongue and your the mind really wants to say something argumentative or aggressive or harsh but you know with wisdom from this path, it just wouldn't be wise for you to speak with wrong speech because it's going to cause harm and therefore that harm is going to come back to you. So it's right effort that you cut that off and you let it go. And you might have to even walk away from the situation in order to remove the mind from this environment where this other person is. So this path, it isn't about training other people to speak to us polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. It's about training your own mind to do those things. And then despite others' behavior, despite others' lack of wisdom, despite others' lack of moral conduct, despite others' lack of mental discipline, you cultivate wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline so that you have control over your own things like right speech and right action so that you're not putting harm into the world. And this is where you can transform your life practice because if you're not putting harm into the world, then harm's not going to come back to you. But you have to practice this path, the entire path, for an extended period of time to kind of clean up your unwholesome results of the decisions you've made in the past. You can't practice this path now and then in a week from now, everything in your life is situated quite well. You have to clean up a lot of the decisions that you've made in the past, but through learning this wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, you will have what it takes to improve your own practice and then clean up the things around you that are causing you challenges and struggles. We have a question on Facebook from Denise. It's very much related to that point you were just making. She asks, how do I not cause harm to others, but still speak up for myself when someone says something hurtful to me? There's two sides to this is, you know, in order to speak up, 
it's always going to be right speech. You know, is it the right time? Is it true? Is it gentle? Is it beneficial? Is it with a mind of loving kindness? And is it blameless? If somebody just said something that you are experiencing painful feelings, that's because of your own craving, desire, attachment. You're causing it yourself. You have to ask yourself, if the mind is frustrated, if it's annoyed, if it's angry, is that really the right time for you to be speaking? Is what comes out of your mouth going to be gentle? Is it going to be beneficial? Is it going to be with a mind of loving kindness? And most likely it's not. So when you experience painful feelings, it's very difficult to practice right speech in that situation. And if you know that you're causing the painful feelings and you know that the other person's unwise speech is a lack of their wisdom, a lack of their moral conduct and a lack of their mental discipline. And your goal in this life is not to teach them. You can't teach them because they're not interested in learning from you. They haven't asked you to be their teacher. And if you realize that you can't teach them, they have to choose to learn themselves. And with these hurt feelings and you're causing it yourself, the better approach might be to just say nothing and walk away. You aren't in any situation where you're being harmed in terms of physical harm or things like this. You have to weigh what's the best thing to do here. And that's where the Buddha doesn't tell you exactly what to do, but he gives you this guidance and helping you see that if you practice wrong speech in a situation where the mind is experiencing painful feelings, if you practice wrong speech, then it's going to cause harm and therefore harm's going to come back to you. And there's some situations, there's many, that it might just be better to just walk away. And you might choose that if this person has a history of speaking to you in unwholesome ways and that you might choose to no longer associate with this person. And that's part of cleaning up your gamma. Because if you've made decisions in the past in order to associate with unwholesome friends and unwholesome associates and the mind is clinging and holding on to them just because the mind is maybe afraid of being alone or losing a friend and you think that that's somehow a bad thing then the mind oftentimes holds on to relationships that it really shouldn't and if you let these relationships go where people are degrading you and talking down to you then the mind can move into more joyfulness more gladness more of a, a peacefulness and then you can open up to other beings who are going to speak with you in wholesome ways and be more supportive of your life rather than degrading you. But as long as the mind's holding on to these unwholesome relationships, it finds it very difficult to move into having wholesome relationships because you might be feeling degraded or deflated or diminished based on what you're hearing from other people. You're still causing that, right? You can't go around and make all wholesome friends because I mean, you can, you can look for wholesome relationships, but that's not going to solve the problem. The real problem is the craving, desire, attachment in the mind that when somebody comments about maybe our appearance or our job or anything else, this is that personal existence view, that fetter of personal existence view that relates to the universal truth of non-self. The mind hears 
negative comments, disagreeable comments about the self-image or the self-identity, and now it experiences painful feelings as a result. So the real solution is not just changing friends, because that can be part of the solution, but the real solution is training your mind to be unaffected by others' intention, speech, and actions. Thank you, David. Let's get a Basim now for our Zoom questions. Hi, James. We have a question from Nick. He asks us, Teacher David, compassion is in the example of anorexia, wholesome states. What would be the best way to cultivate that? And he continues saying, for example, developing compassion for others that are not on the path, i.e., to an argumentative person being encountered. Can you repeat that last part, Basim? Yes, sure. For example, developing compassion for others that are not on the path, i.e., to an argumentative person being encountered. Okay, so cultivating compassion for people who aren't on the path, right? So, and they're argumentative, right? So compassion is a concern for others' misfortune. So one of the things that I think about when I encounter someone who's not on the path and who's lacking wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline is first of all, I recognize it, that it is their lack of wisdom, their lack of moral conduct, and their lack of mental discipline that they're being argumentative. And they don't understand that they're causing their own discontentedness. It's not me. And they don't realize that their lack of moral conduct being argumentative is only going to cause them problems. And their mental discipline or lack thereof is also causing them problems. They don't realize that. Their mind is very defiled and I feel compassion for them. I feel concerned for their misfortune just immediately because they're unknowing of true reality. They have that ignorance or that unknowing of true reality. The next thing to think about is think about what the Buddha taught about how all beings at some point in previous lives have been either your mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter, or some other relative. So no matter what being you come in contact with, whether it's a stranger at the mall, whether it's a butterfly, whether it's a cockroach, all of these beings that you interact with, the Buddha said it would be utterly impossible, essentially, to find a being that hasn't been previously your mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter, or some other relative. So think of anyone that you encounter as being a relative and think of that as being someone who's close to you. So if you have a rough relationship with your mom, you might not want to think about them as potentially being your mom in the past. But if you have a really good relationship with your son, Maybe think of it like that, like, okay, this person is my son, because you wouldn't yell at your son, you wouldn't think negatively about your son, you would just figure out a way to resolve the challenge. So that's another way that you can approach this, is look at all beings as being your family members. And just cultivate this genuine interest in seeing them be well bring some loving kindness into it. Loving kindness and compassion really kind of go to hand in hand in a lot of ways where you have this genuine interest in seeing them be well. And when someone's argumentative, 
and they're not on the path, they are lacking the wisdom because they haven't been as fortunate as you. Not thinking of it from a position of arrogance or pride or ego, but think of it as, wow, it's really unfortunate that this person has never encountered the teachings of the Buddha. And feel fortunate that you have and that you've decided to walk forward on the path and actually get access to resources that help you learn the path. But this person, for one reason or another, either through their own choices or just being unaware that there's even a path that exists that is called the path to enlightenment, just feel the misfortune that they've encountered and that they're experiencing, that they haven't been able to get access to this path and be appreciative that you have. So with these three things, they can really help you to feel compassion for this being. And doesn't mean that you need to change them, right? If, if someone's argumentative with you and they're not on the path, it doesn't mean you try to convert them to becoming on the path. Now, if you do have compassion for them, the Buddha says that if someone is close to us and we have compassion, that we can attempt in humble ways to help them make the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths. And one of the best ways that I found to do that is maybe give them a gift of this book, Volume 1, and just give them a gift, have no expectations of whether they read the book or not, or whether they actually learn from it. But that's a way to just kind of send some loving kindness and compassion their way. But don't be attached of whether or not they actually decide to learn, reflect, and practice. But that's another way that recognizing that this being has the misfortune of not encountering these teachings. If you can put one of these books in front of them, even the soft copy, emailing it to them or whatever, that can be your way of showing compassion, concern for their misfortune. But then don't be attached or have any expectations that they're actually going to learn the path and become enlightened through practicing these teachings. So those are some options for you, Nick, that you can think about and, and perhaps practice. I mean, I have a question about number two. She says, once the mind is aware of an irritation or frustration, is the best thing to reflect that is based on an attachment or simply abandon it without thought? Initially, when the mind experiences any anger, frustration, irritation, the best thing to do is right away cut it off and let it go. That's the best thing. As soon as the mind becomes aware of it, cut it off and let it go. The Buddha talked about it as obliterating it at the stump. He also talked about it as not tolerating any unwholesome mental states in the mind. So cut it off and let it go. But then once the mind completely eliminates the, that particular discontentedness in that particular instance, then it's very wise to look at the craving, desire, attachment that caused it so that you can then eliminate that. If you can eliminate the condition that caused the anger, frustration, irritation, being the craving, desire, attachment, then it'll never arise based on that situation again. So we'll talk about this for those of you guys that are taking this program for the first time. I talk about this as identifying your cravings and analysis of the mind where you can be aware of a rising discontentedness, cut it off and let it go, and then identify the exact craving, desires, attachments that are causing it so that you can eliminate them 
so that you'll no longer experience the arising discontentedness from those same craving desires attachments. Okay, so let's move into right mindfulness and discuss what the Buddha shared there. Again, this is a really long paragraph, I think, and it includes a lot of things. So I'm going to read this for you first so that you can see the Buddha's words, and then I'm going to explain it to you to help you understand what he's discussing here and how you can apply it and practice it in your life to experience the benefits. The Buddha says, In what, monks, is right mindfulness? Here, monks, a monk resides reflecting on body as body, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful. Having put aside craving and worry for the world, he resides reflecting on feelings as feelings, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful. Having put aside craving and worry for the world, he resides reflecting on mind as mind, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful. Having put aside craving and worry for the world, he resides reflecting on the mental objects as mental objects, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. This is called right mindfulness. Now we're going to talk about this in a moment, but I'd like to point out something for you here where he talks about having put aside craving and worry for the world, right? This is where oftentimes the mind wants to go out, change the world, change the people in the world, and thinking that that's somehow going to be beneficial. Where that comes from is the unenlightened mind doesn't understand the world. The mind doesn't understand the natural laws of existence, and the mind doesn't understand that its own craving, desire, attachment that's causing its discontentedness. It's not the outside world that's the problem. It's not the outside world that's the challenge. Sure, there are challenges in the world, Sure, there are problems in the world, but the problem that you're experiencing that's arising discontentedness is all internal. It's all in the mind. It's craving, desire, attachment. It's anger, hatred, ill will. It's what we call ignorance, delusion, or unknowing of true reality. And we'll talk about this in chapter eight. But if the mind is holding on and craving and worried about the world, and every little thing that's happening in the world, and it thinks that it needs to change other people or change the world, you're approaching the path in the wrong way. So what the Buddha is pointing out here as part of right mindfulness is letting go of the world and no longer attempting to change other people, but instead focus inwardly on your own mind. And that's where you're actually going to get the real benefits. What the Buddha is talking about here under right mindfulness is he's talking about the four foundations of mindfulness. This is where he says, reflecting on body as body, reflecting on feelings as feelings, reflecting on mind as mind, reflecting on mental objects as mental objects. So moving into what I would like to share with you, which is how to think about mindfulness in a really simple way, and then also how to understand the four foundations of mindfulness because you're ultimately going to need to understand the four foundations of mindfulness in order to attain enlightenment. And that's something that I will help you understand as part of this program. There's multiple times that we speak about it, discuss it. And then in our Pali Canon in English 
program that we study on Saturdays, there's studies in that program as well related to the four foundations of mindfulness. One of the really easy ways to think about mindfulness when you're first starting out on this path is just think about it as awareness of mind. What you're doing on this path to enlightenment is you're purifying the mind. You're eradicating the unwholesome qualities and you're arising wholesome qualities. You're purifying it of the pollution that's plaguing it and experiencing these difficulties and struggles in life. And you're arising these wholesome qualities in order to push out the unwholesome qualities so that the mind can experience this brightness and this brilliance of the enlightened mind so it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. So in order to purify the mind and move out these unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities, there needs to be awareness of the mind, awareness of what's in the mind. And it's breathing mindfulness meditation that helps you to develop this awareness of mind. And that's what we've been teaching on Wednesdays. So this is where you develop the awareness of mind, but there's actually four different aspects to the awareness of mind. It's called the four foundations of mindfulness. But how could we ever purify the mind if we weren't aware of the mind? And all too often, as we are off this path and completely unaware that there is even a path, we just go through life. I talk about it as knocking down trees and burning up the forest because we're not even aware what's going on in our own mind. You know, we travel around with this mind in this life and in previous lives, but we're unaware of it when we're off the path and aren't even tuned into what's going on in the mind. So what right mindfulness is about is tuning into the mind, becoming aware of the mind. And that's the way that you can think about it from this point forward, if you'd like, and start tuning into what's going on in the mind. But then as you get further and further on this path, what you would like to do is cultivate what's called the four foundations of mindfulness. This is where the Buddha talked about body is body, feeling is feeling, mind is mind, and mental objects is mental objects. What he's talking about here is the progression of discontentedness and how the mind experiences discontentedness. And if you can be aware of this progression, you can then apply right effort and cut off and let go of the unwholesome qualities before they actually come into the mind. So body as body is the bodily sensations. You may not be aware of it now, and you may be if you've ever experienced this. Whenever the mind becomes angered or frustrated or irritated, there's bodily sensations that are going to be experienced before that anger ever becomes feelings in the mind. If you can develop your mindfulness so well that you're aware of those bodily sensations and you can observe the arising discontentedness, whether it's pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, if you can observe them and develop awareness as bodily sensations, and you apply right effort, you can cut them off and let them go right there. And then you save yourself hours or days worth of discontentedness. And that would be ideal. 
but it's typically not possible for someone when they first start learning and practicing this path because one, they haven't developed mindfulness to become aware of those bodily sensations yet. And two, they haven't practiced breathing mindfulness meditation not only to cultivate mindfulness, but they haven't practiced it enough to train the mind to let go, let go, let go. They haven't practiced that enough yet. So the mind's not able to really let it go, even if you are aware of the bodily sensations. But through practicing right mindfulness, this awareness of mind, and cultivating mindfulness in breathing mindfulness meditation, and cultivating the ability to cut off the unwholesome thoughts and let them go, when in daily life you are aware of this arising discontentedness, whether it's pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, when you can observe it, become aware of it, and spot it as just a bodily sensation and cut it off there, that's so ideal because then it never moves to the next step, which is it then becomes feelings in the mind. Once it becomes feelings in the mind, now it's going to start affecting the mind. It's going to affect you for the next couple of minutes, for the next couple of hours. This is where the feelings start to pollute and permeate in the mind. And now it has the ability to produce unskillful speech or unskillful actions, which then causes more harm. It's like a cascading effect. It's like a dominoes falling one after another. But even when it moves past the bodily sensations and it becomes feelings in the mind, if you become aware of it there through mindfulness and you've cultivated the ability to cut it off and let it go there, you might be able to cut it off and let it go there when it's just feelings in the mind. And that would be the next best situation. Because if we allow these discontent feelings to permeate in the mind, then it affects the condition of the mind. This is where for many hours or many days or maybe even a week or two, the condition of the mind is affected by this arising anger or this frustration or irritation. So if you can have awareness or through observing the condition of the mind, you might be able to cut it off there after a day or two or three or a week. But if we can catch it all the way at the bodily sensations and it never makes it into the mind, then we don't have to be concerned about the condition of the mind being affected. That's why it's so ideal that it gets cut off as a bodily sensation. Because once it starts affecting the mind over multiple days or weeks, then it can form what's called a mental object. A mental object is something like ill will or complacency. These kind of things like this are more firmly rooted in the mind and they get into the mind after multiple experiences of bodily sensations. It becomes feelings. It affects the condition of the mind. And now it starts forming this mental object. Another situation, bodily sensations, feelings, condition of the mind kind of adds and accumulates to this mental object. Over time, we form more and more of these mental objects, things like ill will and complacency and other things. Because when we're born as newborns in this world, as a six-month-old or a one-year-old or a two-year-old, we don't have hatred in the mind. 
We don't have ill will. We don't wake up from our nap at six years old looking out for enemies and who are we going to hate today. But instead, because as we grow, we experience these conditions. We have these situations that we experience that result in bodily sensations, feelings, condition of the mind. Oh, let's add to that mental object. And we start forming these containers in the mind that we call mental objects that now they're much harder to uproot. They're still impermanent. We can uproot these mental objects. We can transform them, but they're a lot more challenging. And the Buddhist teachings are going to help you identify all the various potential mental objects. And as you do, then he's going to give you the solutions of how to eliminate them from the mind. And while you're working on eliminating the current mental objects that are in the mind, what you're doing is you're cultivating this awareness, this right mindfulness, so that you can cut off any arising bodily sensations, any arising feelings, and ensure that you're not affecting the condition of the mind so that more and more you kind of eliminate any kind of new mental objects from forming and you eliminate the bolstering or the supporting of these unwholesome mental objects. So you're kind of trying to work on this mind and kind of catch up to it with learning and practicing these teachings. You are cutting off the bodily sensations. You're cutting off the feelings. You're letting go of these things so it doesn't pollute the mind, affecting the condition of the mind and forming these mental objects. And the more and more you're able to do that, then you're eliminating the pollution of the mind that's trying to make its way into the mind. And then any mental objects that are currently in the mind that are unwholesome, you're trying to work on transforming those and move those out of the mind. So what we're doing is we're removing the conditions that are keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state so that the mind can then experience this purity, this brightness, this radiance, this light, this enlightenment. And in order to do that, the mind needs to cultivate the four foundations of mindfulness, understand this process, and then get really good at working with the four foundations of mindfulness to eliminate any arising discontentedness. But for now, if you just think about awareness of mind and kind of tapping into that and start becoming aware of what's circulating in the mind, that is a really good first step. And then as we progress in this program and others, you will slowly start to develop your understanding and practice of the four foundations of mindfulness. Let me see what questions you guys have on right mindfulness. When the Buddha speaks about reflecting on body as body and feelings as feelings, for example, is there an element here of not identifying with these things? Is that a large part of mindfulness? It's not part of mindfulness per se. Mindfulness is just having awareness of those arising thoughts and feelings. What you're talking about more is the universal truth of non-self in realizing that when anger arises, that's not who you are. Those are feelings that are being experienced in the mind, but that's not you. That anger isn't you. Just like the happiness and excitement isn't you, and that boredom and loneliness isn't you, or those hunger pains that are experienced by the body. I am not hungry. 
the body's hungry. The body needs some food, but I am not hungry because there is no I here. So when you understand that there's no I here and you develop more and more to realize non-self, then you realize all of these experiences that the mind is having, they're all impermanent, they're all temporary, and none of them are I. So you don't identify with this anger, this frustration, this irritation. You need to work with it to eliminate it from the mind, but you don't identify with that's who you are as a person. And when you realize that, that there are really no bad people in the world, you're not a bad person if you get angry. You're, you're not a bad person. It's just that you're lacking wisdom, you're lacking moral conduct, and you're lacking mental discipline. And by improving those and developing those, then you can diminish and ultimately eliminate this anger. And as you're in the process of doing that, don't identify with any of those feelings as being who you are as a person. And like so many other parts of the path, would you say that developing right mindfulness, it's developing a skill essentially. For instance, right now we may not have a large ability to observe and have awareness of our bodily sensations before they become feelings. But as we work at this, it, it becomes much easier, I suppose. Yeah. So. Prior to learning what I just shared, you might not have even been aware that there's even bodily sensations before discontentedness arises. So what you're doing as part of these classes, as part of reading the book, as part of watching the video, listening to the podcast, getting personal guidance and things like this, is you're gaining the wisdom to understand how the mind works. That's part of those natural laws of existence is you're learning how the mind works and how these natural laws function and you're not believing them but you're learning them, reflecting on them, and practicing to see the truth. And now that you're aware through just this class, you're intellectually learning that there are bodily sensations that happen prior to the mind becoming discontent with feelings. Now you can start tapping into that and you can start becoming aware of that. So now that you're aware that it exists, now you have to start tuning in and start to be more attentive and watchful over the mind. That's essentially what mindfulness is, is being watchful over the mind. And now when you start noticing this heat or these sharp sensations or this rising pressure in the body or these butterflies in the stomach when you're nervous and anxious or when you're stressed and you feel this pressure on your neck and your shoulders, these are all the bodily sensations that are happening where the body is starting to alert the mind that hey something's going on here and if you cut this off and let it go right here you're going to save yourself a whole lot of issues a whole lot of problems so if you're not aware that this is happening already now you are aware of it that it's happening through this intellectual learning and now just tune into it and tap into it from this point forward as the mind starts experiencing discontentedness then tap into these bodily sensations and start becoming aware of them. And then as you're developing your meditation practice, you'll become more aware of these bodily sensations and you'll develop more ability to cut it off and let it go there. And this is where the mind becomes very disciplined. Talk about mental discipline, that when you can have awareness of any discontentedness that's arising as a bodily sensation, and you can see that and you can observe that and you have the awareness of that 
and you have the mental discipline to cut it off and let it go as just the bodily sensation, this is where the mind's getting close to enlightenment. When you have that ability of control over the mind, you can really see the progress in your development that where in the past, if you weren't even aware of the mind, you just went from zero to 100 miles per hour of anger and you just blew right past all of these things that we're talking about. Well, that's what you were maybe doing in the past. But now when you start being able to observe these arising bodily sensations and it becomes feelings and it affects the condition of the mind and oh yeah there's this mental object of ill will there that's kind of making all of this happen then you are then gaining more and more control over the mind that's another way to think about mental discipline that when you understand how the mind functions then you can get control over it so rather than the mind controlling you you're controlling the mind And then rather than react in situations, you can actually respond in situations, perhaps. Thank you, David. Let's get back to Boston. Well, I have a question from Romina. She asks, are mental objects the same as fixations, something the mind is holding onto? For example, during this period of the pandemic, the mind is often considering social distancing with others ensuring the mask is on correctly, etc. Help us to move the mind away from the mental objects when so many conversations and news articles are focused on the subject and the safety issues around it. Basim, I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing you. I'm not sure if it's the mic or internet connection or my ears, perhaps. <laughs> if, <laughs> if, you could, if you could say that again, that would be really helpful. Yeah, sure. Yes, are mental objects the same as fixations, something the mind is holding onto? Okay, let me pause you right there. Are mental objects the same as? Fixations. Say again? Fixations. Fixations, okay. Yes. Uh, something the mind is holding onto. For example, during this period of pandemic, the mind is often considering social distancing with others ensuring the mask is on correctly. How best to move the mind away from these mental objects when so many conversations and news articles are focused on the subject and the safety issues around it? Okay, so what you're describing, Amina, is not a mental object. That fixation that you're talking about, that's a craving desire attachment. The mind has a mental longing with a strong eagerness for everyone to wear a mask and to wear a mask in a certain way. The mind's craving permanence and it wants everybody to do things in a certain way. The mind has to understand that you have no ability to control everyone in the world and get them to permanently wear the mask properly. All you can do is focus on your own decisions and your ability to wear a mask properly. That's the only thing you can do. And also you can influence your family because I know you have a daughter and a, and a husband. You could help them and you know, politely guide them to do that. But as long as your mind has this mental longing with a strong eagerness for others to do things in a certain way, that's the wanting, the expectation that's gonna cause the discontentedness. That's back to the Four Noble Truths. It's not a mental object. If you had hatred or ill will 
because of this craving desire attachment that's there it's arising this aversion or this anger and that then has bodily sensations it goes into feelings it affects the condition of the mind and now there's this container or this mental object this mental state of ill will and anger that whenever you see somebody with the mask not on or not on properly now right away you just blow past the bodily sensations feelings condition of the mind and you're just aggressive and hostile that's coming from the mental object that's there but the real cause of it is the craving desire attachment that the mind's not comfortable with impermanence and this mental object of ill will is there motivating all this unskillful conduct so what you've got to do is you've got to let go. You've got to practice the intention of renunciation. You have to let go of wanting everybody to do things in a certain way. If they are interested in learning, if they're interested in reading the articles that you read, watching the news that you read, taking the decision to put on the mask in a certain way, then they will do that and they will show interest in doing that. But you don't have the ability to influence that and as long as you want it to happen and expect it to happen and it's not your mind's going to be discontent and then if you have that craving desire attachment for it to happen and you see other people do have their mask on properly and you get pleasant feelings because of that then that's because of the craving desire attachment you need to remain unaffected regardless of what other people are choosing to do and just make the wise decisions to look over your own safety and health. Hey, Rick had a question. He asks about the difference between conditions of the mind and conditions of mental objects. Okay, so mind is mind is the condition of the mind. So this is how the mind can be affected by feelings for several hours or several days or maybe like a week or two. Mental objects are something that are more long-term. This is where there's ill will, for example, that's in the mind. And it experiences, you know, months and years of just constant hatred and ill will towards people. Or you can think about it as complacency. There's different types of mental objects. Let's do it this way. Let's take something like complacency and let's go through all the different steps here. So mental object we're going to talk about this mental object of complacency well as a bodily sensation the mind might feel heavy right it might feel burdened right that's what the bodily sensation that that's going to be experienced over multiple situations before it eventually becomes complacency then the feelings in the mind are going to be like a dullness a lack of motivation that's going to be the feelings in the mind then there's going to be this condition of the mind of this lethargic condition over multiple multiple weeks and then eventually if these things continue and continue and continue it's going to form this mental object of complacency where now the mind is procrastinating it doesn't want to apply effort or motivation it doesn't have a willingness to do something it lacks enthusiasm and this is because of this mental object that's formed called complacency and you can see in your life when you understand all the different unwholesome qualities that are out there you can observe certain mental objects in the unenlightened state that are there 
and then you once you're aware of them then you work to eradicate them because the mind has experienced various situations over the course of your life that certain mental objects have been formed and now that those mental objects are formed you want to cut off any further feelings that are supporting and encouraging and maintaining those mental objects you want to cut off any further fluid for example or, or energy towards that mental object you would like to cut it off as bodily sensations or feelings or a condition of the mind while at the same time working to eradicate whatever mental objects are there for example complacency and this is all part of the practice so today we're talking a bit more of an overview to kind of help people prepare for what we're going to be talking about as part of the whole seven-month program but there's various aspects of this that go into a lot of detail that you need to understand in order to actively work to eliminate these mental objects but for now I'm introducing what they are and kind of how they they work but then you'll see as we progress in this program I'll be discussing these topics further this is just kind of like a survey or an overview in this three-part series of this class Yes, those are perfect examples. They're all mental objects. Thanks, Tisha. No more questions for now. Okay. So moving on to right concentration. This is the eighth step of the Eightfold Path. And right concentration, I'm going to read the Buddha's words here, but I would like to just kind of preface it a little bit. Right concentration is essentially a byproduct of practicing all the other steps, but there's also certain aspects of right concentration that need to be practiced in order to cultivate this concentration or this clarity of mind. What the Buddha is talking about here in the Eightfold Path about right concentration is he's actually talking about the byproduct. He's actually talking about the results of having practiced all the steps of the Eightfold Path, including right concentration. When I talk about right concentration after I share the Buddha's words, I'm going to share with you exactly what you need to do in order to cultivate right concentration. What the Buddha is talking about here is the results of what you're going to experience as part of practicing all the other teachings on the Eightfold Path, including what I'm going to share with you as well. He's going to share with you what's called the jhanas. There's four jhanas. There's four stages of enlightenment, which are all named like stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, and arahant. And we're going to be talking about those next week on Sunday. But prior to getting into the first stage of enlightenment, there's four phases that the mind goes through. And we call these jhanas. The way that you can think about jhana is meditative absorption. This is how, as the mind is meditating over consistent long periods of time, that meditation absorbs into the mind and it produces a jhana. The jhanas are experienced at all parts of your life. Some people think that jhanas are only experienced during meditation itself. The word jhana, it's actually a Pali word. It's a word that is kind of held over from the Pali canon, which is the original source of the Buddhist teachings. The way that you should think about the jhanas are think about them as 
four preliminary phases that the mind goes through prior to reaching to enlightenment. And we're going to talk about these four jhanas today in detail. But let me share with you first what the Buddha shared as the results of practicing all the Eightfold Path in right concentration. And then I'll share with you how to actually practice this. And then, like I mentioned just previously, the whole rest of this program is to help you learn how to practice all of these steps. But this three-part series is to give you an overview so that you understand where we're headed in this program. So what the Buddha says here is, in what monks is right concentration? Here, a monk distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy, and with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and resides in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy, and with the fading away of excitement, remaining imperturbable. This is being unable to be upset, excited, being calm and serene. So the mind becomes imperturbable as part of this third jhana, that it's unable to be upset, excited, and then it also has this calmness and serenity as part of it. So, and with the fading away of excitement, remaining imperturbable, mindful and clearly aware, he experiences in himself the joy of which the noble ones say, peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness, he enters the third jhana. And having given up pleasure and pain, and with the fading away of former gladness and sadness, he enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. This is called right concentration. So by the time the mind gets to these jhanas, essentially what the practitioner is experiencing is this relaxed and calm mind, but yet it's alert and attentive. This is where the mind starts really noticing improvements on this path. When you first join into learning and practicing the path to enlightenment, there's all kinds of major things that you're working on. If you think about your life practice as a big piece of wood and you're making a sculpture, at the beginning you're chopping off big hunks of wood and you can't even see what type of sculpture this is going to be but you're chopping off right intention and you're chopping off right speech and you're really working to improve your speech right because prior to being on the path you were surely not practicing right speech and you're not practicing it early on the path either but you're working on it and you're chopping off these big hunks of of wood which are wrong speech or wrong action and all the other aspects of the path you know even right view practicing that eliminating wrong view that's a really big piece of wood that you got to chop off and get down further and further but as you move into these jhanas you start to really fine tune and you start using different tools to kind of fine tune the sculpture and you're cutting off little bits of wood, you're no longer chopping off the big pieces because you've chopped off 
a lot of those big pieces that now by the time the mind's moving into the jhanas, you're starting to notice these benefits that the Buddha is talking about as the mind moves through these preliminary phases. In general, you can think of it as a relaxed and calm mind, but yet alert and attentive. But the Buddha goes into some very specific details of what you're going to experience in each individual jhana. So I would like to share with you what you need to do as part of right concentration in order to experience right concentration. So in order to experience these benefits that the Buddha talked about, what you need to do is, yes, practice all the other steps of the Eightfold Path, which is step one through seven. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness. But right concentration is all about practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, practicing loving kindness meditation, and any other kind of specialized meditations as needed. That's how you cultivate this right concentration. And developing your practice gradually over time where you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation two or three times per day for 30 minutes or more per session. That frequency is really important. And usually about 30 minutes per session is what most people can work up to and is really effective at that point. Now you might start with just once a day for five minutes or 10 minutes, and that's fine. That's where you're at. But what you'd like to do is gradually ramp up where you're doing two or three sessions per day, 30 minutes or more per session. And that might take you six months, a year or longer. Who knows? Everybody progresses at different pace. This is your independent practice. You're not in competition with anybody. You're not comparing how long you're doing meditation to other people. This is your independent practice. So gradually build up to that two or three times a day, 30 minutes or more per session. So that's how you cultivate this right mindfulness and this right concentration is practicing breathing mindfulness meditation. And then in about a week and a half, I'm going to teach you loving kindness meditation and help you understand what that antidotes, what that remedies and how to actually do it. The other part of right concentration that you need to practice, not just in meditation, but outside of meditation in your daily life is practicing singleness of mind. This is really, really important because you can do all the cultivation of the mind in meditation two to three times per day, 30 minutes or more per session. But if all the rest of the hours of your day, you're cycling from thing to thing to thing to thing and jumping around from thing to thing to thing to thing, the mind isn't gonna have concentration. So if you're on the phone watching TV and trying to eat some food at the same time, this is going to encourage the mind to cycle through these three things rapidly over and over and over again because the mind can't focus on more than one thing at a time. It's literally impossible for the mind to do more than one thing at a time. The mind has this delusion or this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, this confusion that it thinks it's doing more than one thing at a time. But in reality, what it's doing is it's talking on the phone for a few seconds, and then it's rapidly switching to the TV program for a few seconds. Then it's rapidly switching to eating 
for a few seconds and it's doing this repetitively over and over and over and over again. You need to strip down your life practice where you're working and doing things in a single approach, singleness of mind, just one thing at a time. And it's going to feel very awkward. It's going to feel very strange. It's going to feel very weird if you're used to attempting to try to do multiple things at one time. It's going to feel very awkward. The mind's going to probably revolt. It's not going to like it. You might even notice some boredom or loneliness setting in when you're used to walking down the street, listening to a podcast or music and talking on the phone at the same time. When you go to just walking down the street and that's it, the mind's probably not going to like that. It's going to revolt because it has that craving desire attachment for the music or that craving desire attachment for the phone call. So that's why the discontentedness of boredom or loneliness is gonna come into the mind. But it's so important that you strip your practice down. And if you're eating, you're eating. If you're watching TV, you're watching TV. If you're reading a book, you're reading a book. If you're talking on the phone, you're talking on the phone. And what you're gonna realize is you're actually more productive this way. Because you can have that phone call in five or 10 minutes, give it all your focus, bring forth all your wisdom, have a really engaging conversation, handle what you need to handle, and then move on to your next thing. And there's nothing to go back and clean up. It would be very difficult to practice something like right speech when you're on a phone call if you're also trying to watch TV and eat at the same time. So if you're going to clean up your practice and get to a point where you're not causing harm to others, you're gonna need to have singleness of mind. So you cultivate this in meditation where you're just focused on the breath. That's the singleness of mind. Just focus on the breath. Just train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content, focused on the breath. Joy, focused on the breath. That's all the mind needs is just focus on the breath. And when it's off the breath, you cut it off, let it go, and bring it back. And again, you might actually experience boredom or loneliness or sadness or anger, frustration during your meditation because the mind's going to want to revolt. It's going to want to run away. It's going to want to fight you. It's not going to want to do this because it's a wild animal and the wild animal doesn't like to be trained. But as long as you give in to that craving, desire, attachment, you're never going to get to liberation because you're allowing the mind to control you rather than have this mental discipline. So you use meditation to actively train the mind in these dedicated, purposeful, active training sessions throughout your day. And then during your day, you actually practice singleness of mind. If you're walking, you're walking. If you're eating, you're eating. If you're talking, you're talking. Just doing one thing at a time. And don't give in to the mind. And you might have to do this slowly. If you're used to trying to do three, four, five things at one time, even though you weren't doing that before, the mind was just deluded thinking that it was doing these things, you might have to strip that down to maybe two things or three things and then kind of like gradually move the mind in this direction of singleness of mind because the mind's not going to like the impermanence of, hey, you were allowing me to rapidly switch from thing to thing to thing. I was really overactive. I was really anxious. There was this stress that set in. I had this pride, this arrogance, this feeling of accomplishment, and now you're only going to let me do one thing at a time? Who do you think you are? Come on, 
put me back. Give me those three, four, five things at one time. I want to try to do all that stuff. I feel more accomplished. I feel more proud doing all that stuff. The ego feels better when I try to do all those things rapidly. So your mind's going to sit there and try to convince you to continue doing these things that haven't been helpful for your life, even though you might think they have been. So when you're actively working on singleness of mind throughout your daily life, just realize the mind's probably going to revolt. And that's even more of a justification, even more of a reason to say, no, 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 you're not going to do that. We're going to do just one thing at a time. And this is where you can then focus on the entire Eightfold Path and ensure that you're practicing it while you're talking on the phone or while you're doing other things. You can just be single threaded and really focus your attention and that alertness of mind so that you can then be calm and peaceful and maintain that tranquility over the course of your day. Now let's talk about the various jhanas. There's the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. These are those preliminary phases that the mind's going to go through as it makes its way towards the first stage of enlightenment. So as you learn the path to enlightenment in this program, and you're putting it together more and more, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, you're starting to work with right effort, right mindfulness, you're practicing meditation on an ongoing basis, doing breathing mindfulness meditation the way that I've shared, you're not believing any of these teachings, you're learning them, you're reflecting on them, and you're practicing them over the course of a certain period of time, everybody's different. As you clean up your practice, you'll notice that the mind may enter into these jhanas. And as they do, you're going to experience these certain aspects of the mind. And this is where you really get the indication that the mind is really putting together this eightfold path and you're moving in the right direction. Essentially, these jhanas are cluing you in that you're doing some really good things and things are working pretty well here and to keep going. These jhanas, they're not comparisons. They're not something that you talk to people about and say, hey, I've attained a third jhana. What jhana are you in? Right? There's not all this comparison and this measuring and comparing, but instead it's for personal guidance. It's to help you plot your course and be able to observe when your mind is moving into these various jhanas so you know that you're on the right track. Because once the mind starts experiencing these jhanas, that's the time to start focusing on what we call the 10 fetters. We're going to talk about those next week. The 10 fetters are the real detailed difficulties and problems that are polluting the mind. And once you experience these jhanas, and start focusing on the elimination of the 10 fetters, that's where the mind moves into that first stage of enlightenment. This first jhana that you'll experience, this is where you start distancing yourself from what we call central desire. And you start distancing yourself from the unwholesome mental states. So as you learn about the unwholesome mental states in this program, and you start distancing yourself from them more and more, applying right effort, then you'll notice that the mind will start moving into this first jhana. And in this first jhana, there's what we call thinking and pondering. After you've learned all the other 
aspects of this path and you're putting them together really well, once the mind arrives into this first jhana, there's oftentimes a lot of thinking and pondering where in the past you just kind of did things without thinking and you just kind of did them and that was why we knocked down the trees and burned up the forest. But after you developed your understanding of this eightfold path really well, and the mind arrives into this first jhana, when a certain situation happens that you would have just knocked down the trees and burned up the forest, now you start thinking and pondering, how do I practice these teachings of the Buddha to create a better outcome here for me? And the mind starts almost being a little bit obsessive about the path to enlightenment and trying to figure out how do I practice this right speech here? But this is actually helpful for you. It's part of the first jhana. And you might even notice that the mind becomes filled with excitement and joy. Some people call this bliss, that the mind becomes very blissful. And some people experience this almost like a light switch where you can just be going about your day or you can be in meditation. And it's almost like somebody flipped a light switch as it moves into the jhana. Some people experience that, some people don't. In this first jhana, you experience so much bliss that some people actually think they're enlightened if they don't understand that there are these four preliminary phases and there are these four stages of enlightenment. There's a lot of people in the world that actually think they're enlightened, but they're actually just experiencing the first jhana. And if someone actually thinks they're enlightened and they're only experiencing the first jhana, then they're not going to put forth continuous effort to move through the rest of the jhanas and to move through all the stages of enlightenment to actually experience enlightenment. They're going to stay stuck in that first jhana because they think they're actually enlightened and the mind becomes complacent. So it's important to observe if the mind is experiencing this and realize that this is just a temporary phase. In fact, if the mind moves into the first jhana, it can actually regress from here. It's not a permanent mental state like enlightenment itself. Once the mind gets into the first stage of enlightenment, the mind won't regress from there. But in these jhanas, the mind can actually still regress backwards. So be aware of that, that if you experience this bliss or this excitement, the mind's not enlightened. The difference between a mind that is off the path, a mind that is on the path, and a mind that is on the path experiencing the first jhana, it's like night and day. It's very obvious that the mind has moved into this first jhana. And this is where people, like I mentioned, can think that they're actually enlightened. And the experience that you have is so different than the mind being just on the path that a person who experiences the first jhana will typically continue to progress. But like I mentioned, there is the ability to regress backwards. By the time the mind gets into the first jhana, you've seen enough evidence that you know these teachings are leading exactly where the Buddha said they would. The second jhana, the mind starts experiencing this subsiding of thinking and pondering. It's not as obsessed about the thinking and pondering anymore. It starts to subside a bit. There's this inner tranquility or calmness in the mind that starts to come in. And then you experience what's called oneness of mind. 
what oneness of mind or unification of the mind is, is that in the unenlightened state, when we're off the path and prior to getting into the second jhana, there's the conscious mind and there's the subconscious mind. And oftentimes the subconscious mind influences unskillful conduct and it just kind of blows right through the consciousness. This is where you might say things and something comes out of your mouth and you're like, why did I say that? That was so wrong. I shouldn't have said that. That was so hurtful. Why did I say that? That was so silly of me, right? The subconscious mind tends to influence things. And there's like kind of this pollution and this murkiness, this muddiness in the subconscious mind that you'd like to get rid of. Well, when the mind is practicing and the practitioner advances to the point of experiencing the second jhana, there's no longer this conscious mind and subconscious mind. There's been this unification of the mind or oneness of mind where the practitioner then has full awareness or full mindfulness of the entire mind. There's no longer this subconscious mind motivating and producing unskillful conduct. So that's a really nice benefit of the second jhana that you're experiencing all throughout your day. And you're also experiencing a high degree of concentration or singleness of mind, right? Some clarity, some focus, being able to focus on a particular task in ways that you weren't able to do before, that you could just utterly focus, work all the way through that task, complete it, and then move on to the next thing and just doing one thing at a time. And as the mind starts moving beyond the second jhana and towards the third jhana, that thinking and pondering completely gets eliminated. By this point, you've developed enough wisdom that you no longer have to think and ponder over the teachings as much as you did in the first jhana or at the beginning of the second jhana. The second jhana, by the time you're starting to move out of it, all the thinking and pondering starts to subside and completely gets eliminated. And there's still that excitement and joy there, right? That bliss. And it's it's temporary. It's not permanent. It's still temporary. It comes and goes, but there's this almost overabundance of excitement and joy. Then the mind moves into the third jhana, this third preliminary phase, where there's this fading away of this delight or this excitement. It, it starts to kind of fade away. The mind starts to become imperturbable, where it's unable to be upset, where situations in the past that where you used to maybe get upset or frustrated or annoyed or angered, the mind no longer experiences that anymore. So it's kind of subsided a bit. There's still discontentedness there. You might be annoyed, but you're not going to be upset because by this time you fully realize that you're causing all your own discontentedness and the discontentedness has diminished just like the excitement, this conditioned excitement where you're basing your pleasant feelings on some impermanent condition, it has lessened. It's still there, but it's significantly lessened. And there's this calmness and this serenity that starts coming into the mind that wasn't there previously. There's this mindfulness, this you know utter awareness of the mind, being clearly aware of everything that's going on in the mind. And the mind starts experiencing this unconditioned joy where it's not permanent, but you start getting glimpses of what that's like. 
And there's this peacefulness where the mind starts residing in equanimity in complete and full mindfulness. Equanimity is calmness and composure, this evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations. And there's this mindfulness or this awareness of mind that the mind starts gaining this inner peacefulness because of being able to practice equanimity and mindfulness in all situations. And then the fourth jhana is where the mind fully gives up this interest in seeing this pleasure and pain. It kind of gives up the pleasure and pain. It still is experiencing discontentedness, but it's significantly diminished here in the fourth jhana. And remember, what we're talking about here is conditioned pleasantness and conditioned painfulness. Because as you see, the Buddha talks about that the fourth jhana is beyond pleasure and pain. You're still experiencing it. You're still experiencing temporary pleasantness, temporary pain, because the mind hasn't become fully enlightened yet. But you've kind of given up on the interest of actually pursuing pleasant feelings and painful feelings that the mind realizes that they're unbeneficial, but they're still there. You've just given up on the interest to actually pursue it. And there's been this fading away of this gladness and sadness, so this diminishing of discontentedness. And there's this continuous equanimity and mindfulness that we talked about in the third jhana, but here in the fourth jhana, it's become to full development, to fulfillment, where the mind is completely calm, composed, evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations, and you're fully aware with oneness of mind or unification of mind, this mindfulness, you're fully aware of everything in the mind. There's still unwholesomeness there, but you're at least aware of it by the time you get to this fourth jhana, and it's come to full development. Any questions on the four jhanas? So, David, the jhanas, they tend to come as we practice this life practice. They're not something that we tend to focus on. In other words, they just come on their own. Right. There's nothing special that you need to do other than what we've already talked about, which is all the other steps of the Eightfold Path. And for this particular step, breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, developing your meditation practice, and practicing singleness of mind in daily life. And the more that you refine all the steps of the Eightfold Path, including right concentration, what I just talked about, you will then start to experience these qualities. You will start experiencing these preliminary phases that the mind moves through, not just in meditation, because a lot of people think that because right concentration deals with meditation, that the jhanas are only experienced in meditation. You'll hear people that will share with you that there's this special meditation called jhana meditation. But the Buddha actually never taught that. He taught the meditations that I'm sharing, which the two primary ones are breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. And as a result of putting together all the other steps on the Eightfold Path and doing breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, and practicing singleness of mind, you will experience these aspects, these qualities of mind during all parts of your life. And this is where you start noticing the real benefits that the mind is starting to be more finely tuned 
and you can start applying the these qualities these beneficial results of having cultivated your life practice you can start applying these in your daily life to benefit you in things like work and professional life and your personal life as well and i believe you mentioned that these may flicker on and off they don't necessarily develop to steady gradual pace always yes working through these jhanas is much like turning a light switch in an old time light bulb where it kind of flickers and flickers and flickers and you kind of get glimpses of these jhanas before the mind actually moves into the jhanas fully one of the common things that happens is that first jhana that as you experience that for the first time the light flickers and you experience this bliss or this excitement or this joy and you experience it for a few seconds and it feels so pleasurable that the mind's like oh my goodness what is that and you might actually be in meditation or you might be outside of meditation and you experience that and then it feels so pleasurable that the mind starts craving it and wanting it and at that moment the mind regresses it actually doesn't actually move into the first jhana it gets this glimpse of it if experiences the joy and the pleasant feelings but then it immediately starts craving it and it starts to regress and it moves out it doesn't actually fully reside in the first jhana it actually just goes right back out of it so when you experience these various qualities as the mind's experiencing these jhanas you would like to get your meditation practice in your daily life practice where as you start experiencing these various qualities that you remain unaffected by it you don't allow arrogance to come into the mind or pride or any of these other things because as soon as you allow those or craving to come in that's where the mind's then going to regress and you're not going to be able to fully reside in the first second third or fourth jhana so be aware of that that there's this flickering that you'll get glimpses of these various jhanas but don't allow the mind to be affected by it i discuss it as if you were naked standing in the middle of your street where you live and the sun comes out and the rays of the sun are coming down on you just stand in the middle of the street with your eyes closed being completely unaffected by the rays of the sun and then if it starts raining and pouring down raining on you be completely unaffected by the rain so when you feel this joy or this bliss come into the mind just be unaffected by it know that it's impermanent don't try to cling to it don't try to hold on to it don't crave it just know that it's there and just be unaffected by it and it's easier said than done when you experience it because it is so blissful it is so joyful but stay determined stay dedicated and just know that that experience is impermanent and what you're looking to do is not cling or or crave it because if you do then the mind's going to slide out of it and what the real goal is is to get to enlightenment which is past these four preliminary phases and into the fourth stage of enlightenment because that's permanent these jhanas are temporary they are fleeting they come and go they're impermanent so if you latch on and you cling to these jhanas then the mind's not going to be able to move past them and through them and get to the actual permanent mental state which is the ultimate goal which is enlightenment do you have any advice on working toward perhaps our practice in the jhanas and even enlightenment while 
also not craving it and finding that middle. Do you have any advice on how we can do that? Yeah, that's what I'm going to share uh, in this class. I have a slide at the end to share with you guys and kind of bring together all the three classes that we've been talking about so far. I also had one question on right concentration. You mentioned that concentration can be a byproduct of following the path, but and I also suppose is there a symbiotic relationship here where by having right concentration and by meditating it also is practicing the cold path at the same time? Yeah, so the way that I think about meditation is I think about it as a complete practice of the Eightfold Path. This is the reason why meditation is so beneficial for you. Because while you're actually doing things like breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, you're actually practicing the entire Eightfold Path. This is why you experience pretty much immediate results because it's the highest quality gamma that you can produce. It's it's the best choice that you can make to actually meditate. And because of that, it produces immediate benefits and results. So at the time that you choose to meditate, you're practicing right view. Because remember, right view is about accepting that you are causing all the discontentedness and focusing on your own training of mind. That's a brief little summary. Well, at the time that you're meditating and you choose to meditate, you're practicing right view. You might be practicing wrong view at other times in your day, but at that moment that you're meditating, you're practicing right view. You're also practicing right intention because you have the intention of let go. You have the intention of non-ill will, the intention of harmlessness. You're practicing right speech, so to speak, because you're not even speaking during meditation. You're not causing any harm through speech because you're not speaking. You're not causing any harm through your bodily actions while you're meditating because there's no harm that you're doing with your bodily action. If you've got a right livelihood, then you're practicing right livelihood. While you're meditating, you're practicing right effort. You're actively working to eliminate certain unwholesome qualities and arise certain wholesome qualities. So you're practicing right effort and you're practicing right mindfulness, developing awareness of mind in your practicing right concentration or singleness of mind. So this is why when you sit down and meditate for 30 minutes or you lay or you stand or you walk, for those 30 minutes, you're essentially practicing the Eiffel Path to perfection. And this is why it has such profound results for you. And when you do this frequently, two to three times a day for 30 minutes or more, as you do more and more of this over the course of your life, over the next few months and years, this is where the benefits really accumulate and multiply. Thank you, David. There are no more questions this time. Okay, so just like I talked about in last class to summarize the three steps of moral conduct, I'd like to summarize the three steps of mental discipline and then share with you kind of a, a way to go forward from this point forward. So to summarize mental discipline, right effort is taking the initiative to eliminate unwholesome aspects of the mind and cultivate wholesome qualities in the mind. That's right effort. Right mindfulness is awareness of mind while practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. Right concentration is practicing meditation and developing singleness of mind so that you can experience the jhanas. And breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation are key components of practicing right concentration. The way that you now move forward from here is you 
look at, well, what do I really need to focus on? And what you should be focusing on, and this is what this program is going to be focusing on over the next two months, essentially, is helping you to understand more and more deeply, learn, reflect, and practice the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, developing your meditation practice, and helping you to move closer and closer to the jhanas. Now, you may not get to the jhanas in two months. There's no timeline like that. It may take you six months. It may take you a year. It may take you two years to get to the jhanas. But once the mind is in the jhanas, that's where you start focusing on the elimination of the 10 fetters. And by having a relationship with a teacher, as you do coming to class or listening to this content and knowing that you can reach out and connect with me to get help as the mind starts experiencing the jhanas that's where you would like to start focusing on the 10 fetters which is what we're going to talk about next week and it's important that you understand to never ever ever give up on this path because the option is to go back to being angry frustrated irritated for the rest of this life in future lives instead by focusing on these core teachings that I'm sharing here, you can move the mind closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. So here in this program over the coming weeks, I'm going to once again teach you the three universal truths when we get to chapter four. And the four noble truths are also part of chapter four. Chapter five is the eightfold path. So we're going to go through that again about six weeks from now, but we're going to do that in one class. Then in chapter seven, we're going to be discussing the five precepts in a lot of detail. In chapter 11, we're going to be developing your meditation practice. And we're doing that on Wednesdays as well to kind of support you and help you all the way through this program. And next week, we're going to be discussing the 10 fetters. And we're going to also be discussing them in chapter three as well. And we're going to be discussing the seven factors of enlightenment in chapter three as well. So there's this whole path to enlightenment and there's lots of aspects of it that you can learn. But initially, there's these aspects that you need to learn. There's these aspects that are in this program. And there's a whole lot of other things that I'm going to be teaching you as part of this program, too. But this is really you know, part of the core aspects of what you would like to really focus on as you're first getting started. And I'm going to help you with this. You've got resources. You've got these classes. You have the ability to reach out for help. But just remember, it's always an independent practice that you're working in this independent practice. And it's through your own effort your own energy, your own dedication, determination, and diligence that you're going to actually see the results. Nobody can give you enlightenment. It's through your own efforts that you're going to be able to experience that. So this kind of wraps up our three-part series of what we were planning to cover. Just to give you kind of an overview of the path, there's a lot more to learn. There's various details of each aspect of the path. But these first three classes as part of the start of this group learning program was to give you that overview so that you could see where we're headed throughout the next seven months of this program. And if this sounds like something that's really interesting to you, that you would like to get to the point where you eliminate anger and frustration and guilt and shame and fear and boredom and loneliness and jealousy and resentment and all these other discontent feelings, 
you know, you found the path, you found a place that has resources and will give you support and encouragement, allowing you to grow at your own pace without any expectations whatsoever. So I'm pleased that you've decided to listen and learn and understand in these three classes. And if you would like to continue, you know how to do that on Sundays and Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Thai time. We broadcast throughout live stream and Zoom. We record all of this. So as you miss classes over the seven month period that you can learn in Facebook, YouTube, or on the podcast, you can ask questions in class, which is really an important component. You can ask questions in the Facebook group. You can send a private message. You can schedule personal guidance. Each one of these classes are going to be different. There are some classes where I teach like this, and there are some classes where we actually have a group discussion where you guys end up discussing with each other. And you'll see how we intermix that in the program as we go forward. So I'll just kind of turn things over to you guys to see if there's any questions about anything we've discussed in the last three classes or where we're headed in this program over the next seven months. I was wondering, David, in regards to what we discussed today, is there any significance to be taken away from mental discipline being the last aspect of the Eightfold Path in some sense? These eight steps on the Eightfold Path, I think of them as eight individual dials that you need to dial in and bring them into the middle, you know, and adjust one by one by one. So even though you're working on them all individually and you're working on all of them at the same time, they do really build on each other. Without understanding step one, for example, right view, why would you ever apply right effort to eliminate your own discontentedness if you didn't have right view? If you thought that other people were causing your mind to be discontent, why would you ever sit down to meditate? Or why would you ever try to cultivate right mindfulness? So while all of these individual dials need to be worked on individually and all at the same time throughout your practice, there really is kind of this building effect on the Eightfold Path that it builds up from wisdom to moral conduct and mental discipline. And as we go into this practice and the path to enlightenment, would you say it's important to remember that while enlightenment may be the goal, it's it's not an all or nothing thing that students are going to be deriving a lot of benefits out of this practice even far before they reach enlightenment. Absolutely. You should notice within you know a matter of weeks, if you're doing the things that I share and you're not just believing what I share, but you're learning, you're reflecting and you're practicing the Eightfold Path and it's you're, you're refining that more and more to include your meditation, you should be noticing that you're aware of things in a different way than you were before. You're starting to look at the world in a different way. You're starting to look at your own discontentedness in a different way. You're starting to develop wisdom to be able to kind of make decisions in a different way than you were in the past. And in, in a relatively short period of time, you might even notice a bit of diminishing of discontentedness where things that once created anger in the mind or caused the mind to become frustrated or annoyed, you might notice that that starts to diminish in a few weeks even, I've heard. I've, yeah, I've even taught some people within a day or two in a retreat where they came in on the third day and they got an email and they had already heard the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and on the third day they came into to the retreat and they said, you know, 
I got this email this morning that would have normally just sent me off in all kind of anger and jealousy. But after the last two days of the retreat, like I just didn't have that arise at all. I just felt completely content with what I read where I know in the past I would have experienced that in a completely different way. So you might notice these kind of things and that's part of the path. And that's what you should be noticing if you're learning the truth and you're applying effort and energy and diligence to practicing you'll start seeing the results and this enlightened mental state that you're working towards you know who knows where that is in the future for you but ensure that you're not craving it ensure that you're not desiring it your mind's not longing for it but it's a goal it's an objective it's an interest you have to even eliminate any kind of craving that you might have for enlightenment itself or else you will never experience it so you pursue it as a goal objective and interest it's almost like an iv if you've ever had an iv hooked up to the arm where it's just drip drip right it's just a slow drip right and that's what you're doing through these classes through the books that you're reading through you're doing your meditations you're just dripping you know just a drip every once in a while and you're just kind of gradually building up your practice and working at it more and more and more. When you're standing at the bottom of the mountain and you're looking up to the top, the mountain looks so tall. It looks unsurmountable. But that's because you're standing at the bottom looking up at the top. What a wise practitioner would do is just look one step in front of them. What do I need to do next? Well, that's what I'm sharing with you here is, you know, the next thing is is just come to Wednesday's class or read a chapter in the book or do meditation today that's just one step in front of you so you just focus on one step at a time and as you're walking up this mountain it gets easier and easier there's definitely challenges and struggles and difficulties along the way but that's where you have the community of other practitioners and students that are here that can support you Facebook is really great because you can start friending other people that are part of our community. You can reach out to your teacher as you need help and you're struggling and you're having difficulties. That's what all of us are here for is to support and encourage each other, motivating each other in wholesome ways, but always remembering that it's your own independent journey. It's your own independent practice where you've got to do the work, but you've got other people here to help you and support you along the way. So Keep in mind that if you look at the to the top of the mountain, which is enlightenment, then sure, you know, that looks quite challenging. Like, oh, my goodness, I'll never get there. But if you think that way, if you allow the mind to be degraded that way, then, yeah, you'll never get that way because the mind's thinking negatively. An enlightened being is going to think positively. They're always going to cast everything into a positive light. They're just going to look one step in front of them. That's part of that singleness of mind is just one decision after another one wholesome decision after another and when you make a couple of unwholesome decisions and you realize it don't beat yourself up about it just keep going wholesome 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 oh unwholesome unwholesome okay back to wholesome 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 and just make one decision after another single threaded and you'll gradually work your way towards the top of the mountain and once you get there it's permanent You'll never need to experience anger or sadness or any of those discontent feelings ever again. As we start out on this path, this, this of course may be all 
unfamiliar to us. And do you think that there's any any reason to to feel like we have an understanding of faithful path and kind of have committed what it is to memory, or do you think it's okay that we just kind of build that knowledge as this program progresses? If you study the Eightfold Path in a lot of depth, with a lot of repetition, that would be really, really helpful for you. And you'll see that that's what I build into the program. But because you know it's an independent journey, if you're doing that on your own, that can be really helpful as well. And even though you need to be really working on all these steps at, at one time, once you develop right view and you fully understand that, and if you don't, reach out and get some help with that. Once you understand right view, you might decide to, even though you're working on on all the different steps at one time, you might decide to kind of just work on right intention for a few weeks and just really try to work on that for a few weeks or a few months and just really work on that, even though you're still working on right speech and right action and all the others, but you really kind of put right intention under a microscope. And then once you feel pretty confident and pretty confirmed with that, you might decide to move into right speech and really focus on that and really, and maybe even one individual factor of the five factors of well-spoken speech. If you know you tend to interrupt people and you don't speak at the right time very frequently, then maybe just work on that for a week or two or three. Every conversation you have, whether it's on the phone or in person, just work on speaking at the right time, at the right time, at the right time. Just ingrain it in the mind until it becomes effortless. And it's so easy for you to practice that. And then you feel accomplished, not taking any arrogance or pride in that, but you feel like, ah, I can do this because I was able to master speaking at the right time. And I feel really good about that. And then you can move to the next thing and the next thing. And you can kind of increment this little by little with that drip feeding in the IV like I talked about. Thank you, David. It seemed like a nice point to just clarify, you know, that there's no no pressure and a person's not going to come to, to not be overwhelmed by this, you know, that a lot of this learning comes with time. And as we learn further along in the program, the things that we've already learned become more stabilized and, you know, for people to just not become overwhelmed by the things we learn. Yeah, James, you're like a, a um, spokesman for gradual training and gradual practice, right? This is the fourth time James has been through this program. So he's starting his fourth time in the group learning program. And, you know, he'll probably share with you at some point about his progress that he's experienced. But I've seen a lot of progress in James over the time that he's been practicing. I'm sure he has as well. So gradual training gradual practice gradual progress the buddha talks about this in his teachings that he himself you know didn't just go from zero to a hundred in the blink of an eye gradual training gradual practice and gradual progress not putting pressure on yourself i don't have any expectations of you i'm not putting any pressure on you i'm here to help you and guide you no matter what for the rest of the time that you decide to learn with me and the rest of my life. So there's no expectation from me. It's just a matter of you gradually working on your practice and not allowing the mind to be complacent with that, but also not craving it and holding on to it so tightly, but finding that middle where you're gradually working towards improvement and progress. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions we have for today. All right. Well, just to help you guys understand where we're headed in our next class is 
this Wednesday, we're in part three of our four-part series of breathing mindfulness meditation. You're welcome to attend live or take that in in the replay where I'm helping you guys to develop breathing mindfulness meditation, which is part of right concentration, but it's also helping you develop right mindfulness and it's helping you develop right effort as well. And it's helping you to eliminate the craving desire attachment that's causing all the discontentedness. So if you haven't taken in any of those classes yet, they're recorded and you can listen to the first and second class. Uh, You can also just show up to the third class if you like without having taken in the first and second, but it'll really help you if you take in those classes. And we're going to learn those things throughout this program. We're going to be rotating that over and over. So there's going to be plenty of learning of breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, and all those other aspects of meditation that you're going to need. Then on Sunday next week, now that you've learned the entire Eightfold Path, at least in a kind of overview and going into some depth in some various areas, now we're going to talk about moving past the jhanas into the four stages of enlightenment and what those are and what needs to happen in order to move into those. You're not going to be ready to do that stuff yet, but at least you can be aware of what it is. So we're going to be talking about the four stages of enlightenment and what we call the 10 fetters. These are the 10 detailed pollutions of mind that are keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state. And if we have time, we'll also discuss the seven factors of enlightenment. These are tools that the Buddha gives you in order to move the mind into the middle. And if we don't have time to cover that next Sunday, then we'll end up doing it when we talk about chapter three. So that's what we're planning to do on Wednesday and Sunday. So I appreciate all your effort and questions and participation in our first three classes here on Sundays. You're welcome to continue to learn and grow. Let me know what questions you guys have as you continue. Feel free to reach out to people like James and Bossom and all, Nick, Holly, Miranda, other people, uh, Chrissy, other people who are Ali, different people. You know, you'll see these people that are commenting and liking in the Facebook group and you can friend them and they're all uh, open to developing relationships with you. That's part of being in a community. You know, nobody has an expectation that you will do those things. But if you would like to reach out to people who are on the path and supportive of you and who have been in your same situation where you're maybe just starting to really actively learn, these are all people that you can connect with that would be very open arms and warmly welcome you into the group and be able to provide you some thoughts and some suggestions as you get started on this path. So I'll see you either on Wednesday or Sunday. In the meantime, have a lovely rest of your day and we'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.